Okay, so this week we're continuing in week three of the series that Chris started a couple weeks ago about surviving the apocalypse. And if you've listened in at all, you know that the first week we visited David's life and how charmed it was, and then we watched it fall apart when, with the throwing of a single spear. But we also get the benefit of looking at the end of the story, and we were able to see the character that was built in David's life and his love for God that were all created in those 14 years that he spent as a homeless fugitive. And then last week, we dove further into the story of the nation of Israel, and we watched as the nation in the temple that David spent his entire um, ruling life preparing for were reduced to nothing more than rubble. As God used Babylon to judge Israel for abandoning justice and building their kingdom on the same abuses and human injustices as every other kingdom in the world. But Chris also closed with the hope of attaching our true allegiance to a kingdom that's impervious to apocalypse because it's founded on the grace of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But this week you have to listen to me. And what's funny is I've been threatening Chris for months. Every time I hear him tell a story, he throws me under the bus, all of those things. The next time he put me up here, I was going to correct all of those inaccuracies. (laughs) But... (laughs) Instead, (laughs) I have to admit that I actually asked to preach this message, which, like Chris said, is not something that I would normally do. But to say that 2020 has been an incredibly hard year for all of us is probably an understatement. There's countless memes, TikTok videos, comedy sketches, scholarly articles, viral social media posts. I'm sure that you can all add more to my list. I even have a friend who created an Etsy shop, and I would show you pictures, but they're really not appropriate. (laughs) But she created this 2020-themed stationery, capitalizing on just how horrible this year has been. The year has been filled with horrible uncertainty and disaster from almost day one. And if you've somehow been living under a rock and you haven't been affected in any way by fires, COVID-19, racial injustice, Murder hornets, unrest, riots, political circuses, hurricanes, floods, locusts, or the ever-growing list of destructive things that our world is facing, then you're probably only missing out because you're trying to figure out how to do virtual school with your children while working full-time. Life this year has definitely been hard, and it makes me angry because this isn't the way that things are supposed to be. But today we're not just going to focus on the way things are. We're going to look back at history. And if you know me very well at all, or if you've listened to Chris throw me under the bus and tell stories about me, then you know that I love history. In fact, as a child, if you asked me what my favorite subject in school was, I would immediately tell you, history, I love history. And I loved to read. I still love to read. I consumed books as a child about history. I especially loved Russian history, and I loved the stories of the Romanov dynasty and the Bolshevik Revolution. I loved to read about the English monarchy, the American Civil War, the westward expansion of our country, but probably more than anything else, I loved to read about World War II history and the Holocaust. I read the stories of Anne Frank, and I read about Corrie ten Boom, and I read about, I read Night by Ellie Weisel, and I loved World War II history. In fact, I loved it, so, or I love it so much that when my children, my three oldest sons went with their grandmother and my sister in 2007 to Germany, I made sure that they went to visit Dachau. 
It's a former concentration camp, and I was positive that my kids were going to encounter my deep love for history and my desire for them to know and learn from the past. But that's not exactly what happened. Um, Trauma is probably more like what they experienced. And today as adults, I think they would probably all admit that they're glad a little bit, maybe, hopefully, that I made them go. But for years, I'm pretty sure they were just angry at me and thought I was some kind of some sick, cruel, sadistic person that made them take part of their vacation time to go and see some of the horrors of humanity. Well, today, I don't have the same kind of time that I used to to sit and consume books about history, but I still love to learn. And so rather than read, I've developed the habit of watching documentaries, which many of you have probably already heard about. Usually I do this while I'm folding laundry, and I just happen to spend quite a bit of time folding laundry in my house. (laughs) So this multitasking, though, has made me branch out from my preferred method of learning of reading. Um, But through documentaries, I've kind of had to expand my learning because there's only so many documentaries about World War II history or Roman history, or not Roman, Russian history, or the English monarchy. Chris knows and loves British history now. (coughs) Not really. (laughs) Anyway, I've learned about some of the history behind some of the world's greatest inventions. I've learned about early church history. I can tell you far more than you want to know about some pop stars and popes, poets, dictators, inventors, you name it, I've probably watched a documentary about them. I've learned about Far Eastern and African history and culture, and I've watched as entire decades play across my screen, and I've learned to appreciate so much more of what is actually going on in my world as I've been able to look at what's going on in society at large. I've seen U.S. presidents and other notable figures in a whole new light after I learn more of their stories. And I begin to think of these untouchable characters as real people. And that is what brings history to life to me. So I pray this morning that you'll bear with me as we look at some stories. One of these stories is so familiar that our children could all tell it to us, while others might be a little more unknown And yet I believe that all of these stories are poignant for us right now in 2020. So earlier this year, I was struggling a little bit with with my health, and it actually timed out about as well as you could hope for because we were all stuck down or stuck at home in full lockdown. I decided during this lockdown time that I was going to tackle a 26-part college-level lecture series on the Black Death. Yes, my children and husband think I'm crazy. I had pandemic on my brain, like many people did and still do, and it just seemed natural to look back at other times when the people of God had faced similar challenges. In reality, it was fascinating. It was enlightening, and I really only admit to a few people that it was fun to watch. It was kind of like scrolling through social media. I couldn't wait to see what new challenge the lecturer was going to talk about next, and before I knew it, I was looking for ways to lock myself in my bedroom and sit and learn about the plague and really the ways that society dealt with it. So let's just say that my laundry stayed way more caught up than usual as I got deeper and deeper into this 26-part series. And since you're now forced to sit and listen to me, (laughs) you get to learn about the Black Death too. I'm going to share just a little bit of what I learned while folding laundry, towels, and sheets. But I promise this is all going to make sense. So can we go to the first slide? Okay, so this beautiful, beautiful map here that we see 
is part of, you see the Arabian Peninsula and the top part of the northern part of Africa, and then you see some Turkey and Greece and Italy and just a little bit of Spain. And so this is what Europe looked like. I mean, it still looks like this today, but this is kind of got some picture or some cities and stuff in Europe and in Eastern Asia in 1346. The plague that actually became known as the Black Death likely began in the Mongol city of Syria in 1345. But because of how deadly it was, because it was highly deadly, and because of Muslim customs of burial and the way that they treated their sick, sick people, it likely would have died out very quickly. But in 1346 or 47, we're not exactly sure, a group of Italian merchants got into a brawl with some Muslims in the Mongol city of Tana. Now, the brawl itself was a small brawl, but it ended with the death of a single Muslim. And because of the Crusades, which had ended kind of about 50 years previously, Muslims really did not like Italians. So they were, the, the Italians were really afraid that the Mongol king was just going to absolutely destroy them, so they decided to skip town. So they got in their boat, and they headed for the relative safely, safety of a town called Kaffa, which is on the other side. So if you see Tana is, uh, or Sarai is up north, and Tana is just a little bit to the east of that. And then just below that is Kaffa. And so they get in their boat, they go to Kaffa, and the Mongol king decides to follow them because he is really angry that this Muslim died. So he follows them on land, and little does he know that he's bringing with him some soldiers who had become infected with the plague. Um, as, his, as the plague began to grow in his army, he had these soldiers that began to die, and he had to decide what to do with all these dead bodies that are piling up in their camp. And normally they had very strict burial rituals, but they can't do that because they're sitting outside the city of Kaffa. And so he gets this brilliant idea that he's going to load these dead bodies into catapults and shoot them into the city of Kaffa. And this is our very first recorded um, instance of biological warfare is during the Black Death in 1347. So over the course of the next year, the plague devastated both the Mongol, the entire Mongol army and all the inhabitants of the city of Kaffa. In a bid to escape the death and destruction around them, some of the wealthy decided to get on boats of their own and escape to other ports. But they didn't, what they didn't realize is that they were actually taking the plague with them. Over the course of the next five years, not only was the Mongol Empire brought to its knees by the plague, but the whole of Europe lost approximately half of its population. So as I listened, sat and listened to this doctor who had spent countless hours researching and learning about this apocalypse of the mid-14th century, I was struck by with, or with the familiarity of how some people reacted. I started to see some, um, some similarities to the, things, the way people react today. There were people who resorted to blaming the other for this plague. It was clearly a judgment for, from God for, this, for those other people. And then, as always, there were people who buried their worries in temporary pleasures. They hid away from the stress of life with numbing behaviors. And for the few wealthy, the ruling class, the go-to move was just to run away to other places, unfortunately carrying the plague with them and further spreading it. Of course, there were also the scientists, the doctors, the priests, and the ordinary citizens among them who decided to play God 
and they sought to come up with cures and measures to make all the destruction stop. And as I went through this class that was focused on life almost 700 years ago, it began to become really real to me. So much, very much like the life that we're living today. And I couldn't start to help asking myself some big questions like, are we responding any differently today? And where was God in all the death and destruction, in the apocalypse that destroyed so many people in the 14th century? So I wrestled with these questions for quite a few months, knowing in, that somewhere in the apocalypse of the, death, of the Black Death, God was present, and he was showing himself, and I just couldn't find him yet. Then one night, we were sitting in a meeting with some of the leaders here at Open Table, and someone mentioned the story of Noah. I don't even remember what they said, but the, but the reference to that story hit a nerve. And on our drive home from that meeting, I reread the story of Noah. And that's where our reading for this morning comes from. In this story that I've read hundreds of times in my life, this story that the very youngest of our community here at Open Table could probably tell us, I found my answers to the questions about the, de- the black death of the 14th century and the struggles that we face here in 2020. Let's read. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. He went on board the boat to escape the flood, he and his wife and his sons and their wives. With them were all the various kinds of animals, those approved for eating and those for sacrifice and those that were not, along with all the birds and the small animals that scurry along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. That very day, Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. With them in the boat were pairs of every kind of animal, domestic and wild, large and small, along with birds of every kind. Two by two they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathed. A male and a female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. For forty days the flood waters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth, rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks. All the living things on earth died. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth, people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and the birds of the sky. All were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. And the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. As I read this story of Noah again that night months ago, with the backdrop of this lecture series about the Black Death, I was suddenly confronted with a whole new set of complexities that I had never before contemplated. Each week as we pray, as we are sending our children off, that they would find themselves in the story of God. I think that's what happened to me this night as I read this passage from Genesis. 
So this morning, I'm going to ask each of you to come along with me to use your imaginations and to think about some things that we don't actually get from the text, but maybe, just maybe, you'll find yourself in the story of God. As I found myself in the story that night with Noah, I couldn't help but wonder what happened to Noah's cousins, his aunts, his uncles. What about his in-laws, the neighbor who'd watched his little boys as they grew up? Or maybe what about Noah's wife's favorite shopkeeper, the one that sold the best cheeses? What happened to their friends? And for the first time ever, as I read Noah's story, I saw people. I saw faces that I had never seen before. People whose lives came to a tragic end in this apocalypse. What about Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives? What if they had small children? What would it be like for those young moms or those little kids to sit in that boat? What would it have been like to be safe from the waters that covered the earth while those same waters destroyed the lives they had known? The people they had done life with, the animals they had fed, the very earth that they had called home. I wondered if the silence of God became deafening as the chaos of the animal noises and the trapped family permeated every single space. Is anyone else familiar with noisy silence? I think most young moms are pretty familiar with this. When you're lonely and it doesn't feel like there's anyone to talk to and yet your house is never quiet. Like when it feels like your whole world is silent, but there's no quiet. I call this the noisy silence. For Noah's wife, was the loneliness and pain of losing her loved ones made more unbearable by the inability to get two minutes away from her husband or her kids or her grandkids? Or the noisy elephant that wouldn't quake, make, quit, quit making noise? Did Noah's family get tired of one another? Did they feel trapped with nowhere to hide? Did they miss public school? Did they spend every day wondering how long they would be stuck on this boat, rocked and kept, held safe in the hands of their loving creative, or in, their, in the hand, hands of their loving creator? They were the most blessed people on this planet. And yet, it had to feel so much like they were living in a prison as the days, the weeks, the months stretched on endlessly. Did they bicker? Did they throw parties and celebrate one another and then turn around the next day and destroy them, destroy each other with hurtful words and actions? In other words, were they exactly like my family? Did they struggle with anxiety, depression, anger? I don't know the answers to any of these questions, but at the same time, I think I do know the answers. That night as Chris drove us home and I read Genesis 6 to 9 again, I imagined those endless questions And I saw real people. I saw real humans. They had real emotions and they walked around in these bodies just like mine. And they had needs. And they experienced deep loss and trauma. Saw an incredibly small group of people who survived an apocalypse. And since I live in 2020, I also saw myself stuck at home in my own modern ark, listening to the noisy silence of my home the deafening roar of children and husband and animals, all while growing more and more isolated from the people that I love. It quickly became a silent prison, living daily with uncertainty and frustration, joy and sadness, celebrations and conflict. I watched as the world fell apart, knowing all the while that I was held safely by God, and that no matter what happens, 
I was going to be okay. And yet I was desperately begging him to show up and make all of the madness stop. I found myself wondering, how did Noah cope with all of it? What ways were there to cope? Did he hide out in the bathroom to get some quiet? Did he grab a glass of wine and take it into his closet? Did he find himself struggling with guilt over whether or not he had done enough to try and save more people? Did he spend countless hours with his thoughts, wondering just how mankind had gotten to the place where God decided that he needed to start over by trapping Noah and his family with a bunch of stinky animals on a boat floating 22 feet above the tallest mountain? How had they even gotten here? And to find answers to those questions, we have to go back to Genesis 6. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had ever made them and he put them and had put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. God's heart is broken here. Man is capable of nothing but evil. This isn't the way that things are supposed to be. Everything is horribly broken. God decides there needs to be a reset, and so he searches the whole earth and he finds Noah. Noah found favor with God. We don't know why, but we do know that Noah did everything that God told him to do. He tells Noah, I'm going to destroy everything. The earth is filled with violence, but I'm going to use you to start over. Now, I did a little bit of Hebrew work here with Chris, and I found that the word violence in verse 13 is actually the word hamas. I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation, but I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and I'm not ever going to be one. This word is interesting when we think what, because when we think today of the word violence, most of us think of things like fighting, war, murder, and brutality. And while the Hebrew word does certainly apply to all of those things, it encompasses so much more. You see, the word Hamas means unjust gain, cruelty, falseness, injustice, and oppression. When I look at our culture today, words like this make me more than a little worried. Because maybe this definition is not what I want to read when I picture the type of violence that leads God to say that the entire earth needs to be destroyed. In fact, the kind of violence described by this definition sounds eerily similar to much of what I see mirrored in our society and earth today. So in God's day, he saw viol- or so in Noah's day, God saw violence. And it breaks his heart that mankind is doing nothing but hurting and oppressing one another. And God told Noah, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to destroy all of it. I need you to build a boat. Here's all the details and the plans. Oh, and by the way, you've only got 120 years to do this. I'm reading through the Bible this year, and I just made it to the New Testament. Towards the end of the New Testament, you read several books that are all compiled all together by the prophets. 
And they're all letters written to God's people. The thing that struck me this year as I read through those books is that there's a common theme. In each of those books, God's crying out to his people over and over and over. Chris touched on this in his sermon last week. God was continually warning his people through the prophets, repent, stop what you're doing. Stop oppressing the widows and the orphans. Stop valuing your wealth over people. Stop spreading violence. It's the same message over and over and over again. And it was preached for hundreds of years. It's still preached today. God is always calling us, his creation, back to himself. He's always, always calling us to do better. So God gave Noah 120 years to build this ark, his version of the go bag that Chris has been telling us about the last couple of weeks. He gathered, he built, he prepared, and he warned. In fact, in 2 Peter 2.5, we see, And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. In those years, as Noah warned of the coming apocalypse, was he secretly hoping for a different outcome? Was he hoping that his friends would take his warnings and get on the boat with him and his family? We don't know. In fact, he may have looked around at all the wicked people, all the enemies that he really didn't like, and felt just a little bit of pride that he'd been the one that was chosen by God and he wouldn't have to put up with all their craziness. As Noah sat on the ark all those years later, I can only imagine that he had to wrestle, what he had to wrestle through, all the thoughts that he had, asking God to break through the noisy silence of the ark. Noah must have begged God to make sense of what he was going through. But after surviving nine and a half months of 2020, I have to imagine that the, quick, the biggest question that quickly came to the surface for them all was when Will things go back to normal? In fact, in Genesis 8, it reads like this. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground waters stopped flowing, and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped. So the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth. After 150 days, exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Two and a half months later, as the waters continued to go down, other mountain peaks became visible. After another 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the boat and released a raven. The bird flew back and forth until the flood waters on the earth had dried up. He also released a dove to see if the water had receded and it could find dry ground. But the dove could find no place to land because the water still covered the ground. So it returned to the boat, and Noah held out his hand and drew the dove back inside. After waiting another seven days, Noah released the dove again. This time the dove returned to him in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. Then Noah knew that the floodwaters were almost gone. I'm sure normal definitely was on their minds as they waited and waited, sending out birds to look for dry ground. And the disappointment that must have settled on them each time the bird came back without any evidence of life on earth was probably barely, barely palatable. 
Even once the bird brought back the small olive leaf and there was new hope, the waiting still stretched on. At this point, I feel the stir craziness of desperately wanting to be outside with their feet on the earth for the first time in so long while their sun warmed their faces. The uncertain joy that must have settled on the whole crew of them when the bird didn't return must have felt like a breath of fresh air amidst what I'm pretty sure were probably pretty odiferous living quarters. And yet they still waited. Waited until the day that God finally said this. Then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, and the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. It was time, time to walk free of the ark. But what were they walking into? Not only were all the animals except for the ones they had brought with them gone, their friends and family were gone, everything lost to the destruction. In fact, the very earth had fundamentally changed. We know that before the flood, there had never been rain on the earth, and we know from floods that we've seen that the earth would have been catastrophically different from the earth that they had known. We're fairly certain from archaeological evidence that the land was broken up, with new land masses and bodies of water likely created. Plant life became radically different, and there were now temperature extremes that had never existed before. The earth that they knew before had been destroyed, leaving something entirely new behind. This new world was oddly familiar, and yet it was entirely unknown to them. Their normal was officially gone, but none of that truly mattered. All that really mattered was that God remembered them. He hadn't forgotten them. He hadn't abandoned them or left them to drift aimlessly in an ark forever. He still had a plan for them. And just like Noah and his family exited the ark onto a completely different earth from the one that they had known before, and Europe's socioeconomic picture was completely different after the Black Death, I would venture to say that our earth is going through some of these same types of cataclysmic changes. A global pandemic and a growing dissatisfaction with life by huge groups of people across the globe are just two of the ways that our world is drastically changing. So how do we respond to this? What do we do? Well, I don't know how many weddings you've been to this year, but like Chris said earlier, Friday night, our third son Elijah married his beautiful bride, Katie. And every wedding I've been to has been oddly similar and yet totally different from any weddings I've ever been to before. The wedding preparations for this wedding started prior to the coronavirus, And because of a microscopic bug, they have been fraught with uncertainties, last-minute changes, frustrations, stress, and lots of tears, many of them mine. This past week has been crazy stressful for our family. Between finding out that one of our sons would not be at the wedding because he had been loosely exposed to the virus, to deciding last minute to move the after-party to our house, to Eve, our fourth daughter, waking up Friday morning feeling sick to her stomach and then rapidly getting more and more sick so that at 1 o'clock we had to make the decision for Chris to take her to the urgent care clinic and then finding out that they needed to go to the ER and that she and Chris were going to miss the wedding. Then determining that she needed an emergency appendectomy. This week 
has been downright crummy. This week, it felt like I have to imagine the last week before the flood and the first week of the flood must have felt for Noah and his family. In Genesis 8, Noah's story reads like this. Then God said to Noah, Leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, and the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. Noah and his family finally got to get off the ark, which had been an incredibly joyful experience, but yet nothing was the same. Everything was different, and yet it was similar. But God's plan here sounds remarkably like something Chris read to us a few weeks ago in Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. You see here in Genesis, God has just created everything. He says it's good, it's perfect, and man is supposed to care for and create more life. But things quickly fell apart. But if you remember from that same sermon, Chris shared with us something from the very end of the Bible. In Revelation 22, we see this. Then the angel showed me a river with, water, with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will, will worship him. This is such a beautiful reminder to us that God created perfection in the beginning, and he intends to restore that perfection. That perfect garden where God placed Adam and Eve becomes a city that brings light. And instead of rivers that created the boundaries of that garden, a river that gives life flows forth from the throne of God. Rather than protecting man from eating from the tree of life, the very leaves of those trees are used to heal the nations. You see, God is a God of restoration. And that is where our creation, that is where our earth is headed. Restoration of the perfection that he created in the beginning. And yet here we are in 2020. We're stuck somewhere between Genesis and Revelation, searching for glimpses of redemption and restoration. Where do we find redemption in our story? I think if we look at the story of Noah, as God repeats again to Noah, that humanity's job is still the same that it was in the beginning, before everything fell apart. He said, care for the earth, be fruitful, multiply, rebuild, restore. In order to obey God's word, they would have to continue to do the work of learning to care for and love one another. Maybe, just maybe, the whole time that Noah's people were on the ark, they weren't floating aimlessly, waiting for God to let them out. Maybe they were just practicing God's original plan of caring for creation in a different way. And maybe God's reminding them again that their job, their mandate from him, never really changed. What if maybe 2020 is about God reminding us that we aren't stuck? We're not waiting for him to show up. Maybe 2020 is about him reminding us that he's right here, gently whispering to us that our job, our mandate from him still hasn't changed. It's 
still care for my creation. Care for one another. Create. Rebuild. Be fruitful. Make more of my disciples. Genesis tells us that when Noah and his family got off that boat, they immediately set to work, continuing to care for the animals and for one another. But they also began the work of rebuilding. They planted crops and vineyards. They built homes. They grew their families. And they lived. They lived their lives. They remembered. And they told the story of the time that God saved them by trapping them in an ark with all the animals while it rained and rained and rained. They told stories to their children of life before, and they told them of the beautiful rainbow in the sky and the promise that God made to them to never, ever destroy the earth with floodwaters again. You know, someday 2020 will be no more. And through the rearview mirror of history, people will look back and they will see our failures and our mistakes. They'll see the areas where mankind spread spread violence and helped to create our apocalypse. Hopefully, they're also going to look back and see that the people of God showed up, that we didn't forget our job, that we kept on caring for one another and for the world around us, that we led the way out of the uncertainty to rebuild again. And maybe we didn't do it with great scientific discoveries or money or power, but we did it instead by shining with the light and the love of God. So take a look at the people in your art. Take a look at the people here today. These people, they're yours. Love them. Learn to care for them. Pray for them. Fight for them. Encourage them. Do it every single day. Because God gave them to you. And just like he used Noah and his family to rebuild the earth, he's using us to rebuild our earth. Our new normal and to provide glimpses of the restoration that he has promised is coming. Apocalypses happen. People die. Nations fall apart. Wealth disappears. Youth and beauty and power, they all fade. Crummy weeks happen, and people who are supposed to be at your son's wedding aren't there. But you know what else happened this week? Elijah and Katie got married, and it was beautiful. And their celebration was incredible. And Eve is resting and recovering at home. And truthfully, none of that would have happened without some of you. Some of you showed up this week, and you lived life right alongside our crazy crew. You prayed for us, you listened as we complained and lamented, and you loved us big. Some of you spent your free time and your not-so-free time showing up to make the celebration of a new family beautiful. It was anything but normal, but we will never be able to tell the story of Elijah and Katie's wedding or this week without telling of how our people showed up, how they loved us and made a really crummy week into a picture of love and beauty. In the end, All that's going to remain of us is the love and care that we've shown to God's crowning creation, mankind, the people right here with us. As we close this morning, I'd like to go back to the 14th century, and I'd like to pray a prayer written by Thomas Bradwardine. He was a theologian who succumbed to the Black Death himself. In this prayer that he wrote shortly before his death, 
may we find a prayer for us today that will anchor us in the job that God has set forth for us all. Grant, most gracious God, that we may love and seek thee always and everywhere, above all things and for thy sake, in the life present, and may at length find thee and forever hold thee fast in the life to come. Grant this for the sake of, our, of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As we come to the table, um, let me start by saying what I don't need, because last time Esther spoke, this was an issue. I don't need 27 emails suggesting that maybe she take over as pastor, <laughs> and I make sure the floors stay vacuumed. We don't need that this week. <laughs>